This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Morality begins in paying attention to what you don't want to pay attention to, but should attend to. Jordan Peterson. In my recent conversation with John Bervaiki, Canadian cognitive scientist and the creator of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, we discussed how the conditions of the loss of wisdom and spiritual traditions that organized individuals' attention has created the conditions for an attentional crisis. Not to mention the fact that we've developed the most advanced technologies possible for capturing people's attention, this attentional crisis has created the need for changing our practices to cultivate our abilities to control our attention and guide our own development, to prevent it from being stolen and added to corporations' bottom lines. That's what I'm going to look at in this essay. What is attention? How does it function? How can we control our own better? How does attention function? There are two poles to attention, salience and prioritization. Salience describes how prominent or emotionally striking something is. In other words, how something stands out against the background and becomes obvious to us. How things are obvious to us is actually not so obvious. Salience is bottom-up and involuntary. The phenomenology of salience will make more sense if you think about it like a video game. In a video game, objects or paths that are desirable are lit up in a different way, mostly brighter or more colourful, to indicate non-verbally that they signify value and should be pursued. Our bodies and biology employ the same strategy to guide us toward what is considered valuable. I.e. when you're hungry, food looks really good, when you're thirsty, water looks really good, etc., This type of unconscious salience direction is the basic cable philosophy of being a human being. We head towards pleasure and we avoid pain. It's the sort of standard animal package of operating in complex environments. And salience plays a big role in mediating that process. What is salient to us indicates reward and is dopaminergically mediated. Dopamine is the molecule of more. It's the molecule of pursuit, drive and motivation. Interestingly, what happens with people with ADHD who can't pay attention for a sufficient amount of time is that doctors treat them with Ritalin. Ritalin is an amphetamine, and this increases dopamine because dopamine is key in being able to focus. Dopamine helps us pursue goals, and with a low level of dopamine, you're unmotivated and hence unfocused. There are a lot of interesting studies with rats on dopamine, and a rat with no dopamine won't even eat food if it's put beside it or close by, whereas a rat with a healthy supply of dopamine will walk over electric platforms or through a maze, in other words, exert a lot of effort to achieve the reward. So if you're dopamine starved, your attention is not going to be very good. The other pole of attention is prioritization. Prioritization is the action or process of deciding the relative importance or urgency of a thing or things. In other words, prioritization functions by values, by valuing one thing over another. When you selectively and consciously pay attention, there is a cost, which is why we use that metaphor. To pay attention to one thing is to ignore everything else. 
and not to mention that this is also psychophysiologically costly. This means we are always trading off in prioritization between what we find salient and what we should find salient. Many things call forth our attention, people, things, practices, and in life it would be so easy if we could just find the right things salient and not have to consciously prioritize or reprioritize all of the time. But life is never that simple. This brings us to the problem of attention, which is summed up in John Verveke's theory of relevance realization. The problem of attention is that there are simply too many things to pay attention to in our environment at one time. We are finite, and to all intents and purposes, the changing environment is infinite. There are too many things to pay attention to in our own memory, in the immediate environment, and even in our own body. You could pay attention to your left shoulder, to your breathing, to your right foot, to your left foot, but very quickly that will become too much. So it turns out we actually function intelligently by ignoring a huge amount of irrelevant information and zeroing in on relevant information quickly. But how can we do this when it's actually impossible to consider all of the options, at least computationally? If we tried to computationally consider every possible outcome of our behavior and shift of attention, pretty soon we would blow up, metaphorically speaking. So humans engage in hyperbolic discounting. We ignore large swaths of information that are irrelevant to our goals and goal-directed behavior. In a person who is suffering from anxiety or is getting paralysis by analysis, they will consider too much information that is irrelevant and struggle to actually focus in on what matters most. This seems to be the function of the default mode network in the brain to actually screen information out. And a lot of current research is suggesting things like psychedelics actually open up this screening process and shut down the default mode network to bring more information into consciousness than usual. Problem of attention means that the search pace is too large to search computationally or algorithmically and results in combinatorial explosion. How we solve the issue of combinatorial explosion is with heuristics, which is an approach to problem solving or self-discovery using a calculated guess derived from previous experiences. There's much more complexity behind these ideas, and if you're really interested in the scientific depths, I recommend checking out the relevance realization theory paper, which I've included in the description. For the purposes of this argument and understanding attention, we simply need to know that the machinery that makes us adaptively intelligent, various cognitive and perceptual heuristics, also makes us perennially self-deceptive and self-destructive. In other words, we often find the wrong things salient or relevant. And so we have a problem that we have to deal with. We think bad things are good and good things are bad. How do we control our attention better? So what do we do? Thankfully, philosophers knew about this perennial problem quite some time ago. And it is the meaning behind Socrates' statement of, I know that I know nothing. The first principle being epistemic humility. And that that epistemic humility and learned ignorance, or learned ignorance, should prompt one to be more oriented towards seeking for the truth, and less oriented towards thinking what you already have is the truth. In other words, you pay attention to what you are paying attention to, and reflexively self-correct and adapt. 
and the hope is eventually you get pretty good at it. Something like driving a car and become a good steward of your own self-development. That's the hope, anyway. The argument that I'm making here is that attention functions by developing and develops by functioning. We are always training our salience and hence we have a developmental responsibility to get attention going in the right direction. Salience is trained over time, so the more you act on a rewarding stimulus, the more you reinforce in your brain that stimuli and the behavior you use to pursue it are rewarding and worth doing again. In other words, it becomes a habit, and that habit is hard to break because you become wired towards the behavior that's rewarding, and that can get you into what John describes as reciprocal narrowing. In other words, you get funneled into a tighter and tighter pursuit of this one good. The most obvious example of this problem is addiction. In addiction, one good, an addictive substance, let's say, becomes salient beyond all others and shines with a mythological light that can be so compelling people destroy themselves for it. What is necessary to begin treating the addiction is a metacognitive awareness that salience is information and not direction. Developing metacognitive awareness of salience is like realising you are wearing a pair of glasses with a particular lens on them and then cultivating the ability to take those glasses off and look at the lens, evaluating if they are appropriate or not for the circumstances, and selecting a different lens if not. The opposite of reciprocal narrowing is reciprocal opening, which is kind of like finding philosophical joy and happiness in everything, or in other words, a positive feedback loop. My rather bold suggestion is that cultivating this metacognitive awareness of salience is the first step to getting there and is also something that we used to know as wisdom. Science, as we know, will have to change to accommodate this truth because one of the things that have kept religion and science apart is called the fact-value distinction. The fact-value distinction is that there is an epistemological difference between descriptive statements of fact and evaluative statements of value. Attention messes this up because the facts of attention are values. It is a fact that attention functions consciously by evaluating the worth of one stimulus over another, in other words, by value judgments. Carl Jung saw attention as a kind of worship. The more attention you paid to something, the more you valued it, and what you valued most had a quasi-religious status in your life. He saw this in addicts as well, that their problem was really a spiritual problem, and that the alcoholic was addicted to a certain spirit that alcohol brought into their life, and that this spirit had to be replaced with another spirit. Carl Jung was actually the founding inspiration for Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the most successful treatment for alcoholism ever invented. And you can read his letters with the founder Bill Wilson in the description if you like. Jung looked at the unconscious forces acting on our attention, what we find salient and voluntary, as the polytheistic world of the gods. The sum total of these gods being the whole panoply of forces that can act on our attention. Interestingly, the Latin word for god or deity, deus, is descended from the Proto-Indo-European deus, or shining. Jung thought for ancient people, paying attention to what you should pay attention to was even harder than for us. We've benefited from thousands of years of cultural evolution and institutions that they didn't have. However, they figured out that through rituals and stories like myths, that they could gain influence over their attention and hence their destiny. One example of this would be the god Mars or Ares, the Greek god of anger. 
There's plenty of research on anger in cognitive behavioral psychology that anger draws one's attention to certain features that are self-reinforcing. In other words, you ignore details that might discomfort your anger and focus on details that make you even angrier in the moment. And this causes a feedback loop that can lead to some really bad stuff, as I'm sure we've seen throughout history. Realizing that you are under the influence of a powerful emotion, developing a metacognitive awareness can give you some control over that emotion. This is done in therapy a lot by naming emotions. But it was also what ancient people did through personification. It's a lot easier to negotiate with a person than an abstract idea, particularly when you're not super comfortable with abstract ideas. And so Aries came to represent the powerful and evolved pattern of behavior that is carried out by anger and offered a mythological and cultural basis to negotiate with this powerful emotion more effectively. Emotions and motivations have epistemological significance and influence our perception through salience, both within and without, because this also applies to memories. A depressed person's memory will be biased towards more negative information, but this is probably the case with all other emotions as well. This point ties back to the argument in the beginning, that the loss of cultural wisdom and spiritual traditions that helped us to organise our attention has left us as individuals vulnerable to not just technological attention capture, but also to not being able to control our attention through emotions. And if the quote in the beginning is to be believed to even be moral or ethical people at all, that's why I consider the problem of attention to be paramount. If we can't pay attention to problems in general, we have no hope of solving them in the particular. <coughs> How do we control our attention? Does it have to be this way? Do we have to restart cults of Ares and pray to Greek gods? Um, this is what Marvel is trying to do, but personally, I don't think polytheism is the way to address this problem. The solution is the development of ecologies of practice that help us cultivate wisdom and virtue, developing personal and smaller institutions that can allow us to re-engage with larger wisdom traditions, to develop wisdom to tell us proper salience from improper salience, virtue from vice, and practice virtue to orient and guide us toward the good. The Greeks had two concepts for self-control, but both with different meanings. The first was enkratia. Enkratia literally meant power over oneself or something else. This is the classic white-knuckle inhibitory self-control that we use when we try not to eat that last piece of cake. The second concept was sophrison, often translated as temperance, but it is a more nuanced idea than that. The Stoics thought of Sofferson as restraining appetites, but also as an excellence of character which balances all of the other virtues. As Verveke writes, Sofferson is becoming oriented to and tempted by the good, the sage's salience landscape. Finding the right things salient, the wrong things unappealing, at exactly the right time, every time. Sounds pretty sage-like if you ask me. My argument here is that Enkratia is the beginning stage of this journey and that through the changing of habit this becomes Sofferson and our character and is more of an equilibrium than a final personality trait. So take for example the tasty cake. If I'm on a diet, I'm trying to lose weight and I find a big tasty cake really salient. I have to decide whether to eat the cake or not. 
But then I also have my other priority to consider. And so if I don't eat the cake, this would technically be in Kratia. But if I continue this process, taking each event as it comes and gradually changing my habits to orient myself towards the good, then it will become Sofferson over time. We are constantly retraining and training our salience and in the moment salience mapping what is worth pursuing and what is not, what is called salience tagging. This salience map that we have is called our salience landscape and our salience landscape is evolving and changing based on our attentional and action habits. The pattern of those habits in general is our character. Attention is controlled by character and in developing character we can control our attention better. But that then leads to the question of how do we develop our character and that is beyond the scope of this particular essay but something we will broach in the next one. But to end this point, taking responsibility for your attention, paying attention to what you should pay attention to versus what you find salient in the moment is the beginning of this process.